Welcome to the Rapid Change Matters podcast. My name is Howard Cooper, and for over 14 years now, I've been fascinated with helping people to create personal change quickly. But I still come across many who believe that lasting personal change has to take a long time, consisting of reliving traumas or deep psychological analysis, or simply that flawed notion that understanding why you have a problem will somehow make it go away. I'm on a mission to get people who work therapeutically with others to shift their thinking and realize that these beliefs are not written in stone. Rapid change can happen. So, to help you open up to what's possible, I'm interviewing top therapists and agents of change who are out there getting real results with real people really quickly. Before we get to the interview, I just wanted to let you know that I've written a quick-to-read, downloadable PDF on five strategies to amplify your client's response, with some great tips on getting your therapeutic suggestions to really sizzle. You can download this for free from rapidchange.works, where you can also find all the information about this episode and episodes still to come. Now, over to the interview. Hypnosis without trance. Teacher of self-mastery, internationally recognized and respected personal adaptedness coach with a diverse background in philosophy, music, martial arts and NLP. Today promises to be the trip of a lifetime. Very excited to welcome James Tripp to the Rapid Change Conversation. Welcome, James. Thank you for having me, Howard. Absolute pleasure. Tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, how you got started. Okay, Um, I am a professional brain wrangler. (laughs) <laughs> I, I sometimes say, and I say that tongue in cheek, but really what I mostly do is issue specific change work with people. And uh, what I've started really calling personal psychology coaching. Um, but those are the two things. And there's a lot of overlap between those two things. In addition to that, I, I teach people bits and pieces about hypnosis and about change work and that kind of thing, too. I, I got started by I've always had a, an interest in um in, in magic, in a way, uh, specifically real magic. This is a thing that I, I only sort of realized recently. Um, and that goes way back. But about 2001, I saw Darren Brown on the Jonathan Ross show. And uh, I saw him doing a piece. He'd had one TV special at the time. It's before his first TV series. And he did some stuff with the, ho- with the house band. And it blew me away. And I thought, whatever this guy is doing, I must learn this. Uh, I jumped on the internet, which, well, what, it was called the internet. It's very different from the internet we have now. And I did a little bit of research and found a resource page, which was simply a list of books. If you want to know what Darren Brown's doing, read these books. Uh, and amongst those was Introducing NLP, and that got me into NLP. And that was a huge, that book, Introducing NLP, I've said this in other places, I read half of it. Uh, because by the time I read half, my whole world had been turned upside down. <laughs> so much so that there was no point reading the other half at that point. I, I was overwhelmed with new ideas and new possibilities, and just reading on would have been pointless. My head was literally spinning. Uh, and at that point, the biggest thing that I got from that was that that we consist of learnt behaviours and skills, um, both explicitly on the outside and internally on the inside. And, you know, whatever it is that a person can do or however it is that a person can be, you can get at least something of the structure of that and and bring much of that into yourself, the whole kind of modeling thing. Um, And that really was a huge thing for me. So I started to essentially uh, start on this long process of undoing myself and creating myself anew in various ways, which I'm still engaged with, picked up a whole bunch of skills along the way and this is what I do with other people now. I sit down with them and help them either undo themselves uh, in a broad sense and recreate themselves anew or undo themselves in relation to a specific thing that they wish to change in their lives and recreate that aspect of themselves anew. And tell me, on the rapid fire question round um one of the questions that i asked you was uh, about something that you've changed your mind about 
over the years, something you thought was true. Uh, and obviously you have this thing around hypnosis without trance. And yeah. your response to it was, you know, you kind of thought that you could do hypnosis without trance and then there is trance and you've kind of had a journey with that. And I would love to know more about that. So trance is an interesting word and it is a word first and foremost when we're talking about the word trance. Um, people often do this when they, they, they try and examine reality the wrong way around, I think. I think they start with words and they go, what does this mean? What is this word? And they start with the word and they try and track back to reality. I often encourage people when I'm mentoring them to, to start with reality and move towards words. It's not an easy thing to do, uh, but it's, it's something I would encourage. So what we have is this word trance. And, and obviously I'm known as the hypnosis without trance guy. So I'll, I'll dive into the narrative of, of how... I came to sort of throw trance out, but also how I've, I've come to sort of bring it back in a bit as well. Uh, and I think it's, it's all the better for the process of being thrown out and brought back in, at least for me. Hmm. Um, so initially when I started out, I learned hypnosis. I learned what you might call the trance model of hypnosis, the state-based model of hypnosis, that hypnosis quite literally is a special state, often called trance, that when somebody is put into that state by a hypnotist, they become open and responsive to suggestions in a way that they would not otherwise be in, in, a, in another state of mind. And this model of hypnosis is a special state called trance. It leads people to a particular way of doing hypnosis, which typically looks something like this. You have... The, the first maneuver is perhaps a pre-talk to set some frames. And then there's a trance induction. And this is the point of putting somebody into the special state that is considered to be required. And, um, and trance has a particular feature. It is said to actually literally have this particular feature of depth. And that what will take in terms of suggestions is a function of this depth thing. Mm -hmm. and, um, and as such... We have the situation whereby uh, if a suggestion doesn't take, the idea is the person wasn't deep enough in trance. We have to return to the sort of deepening phase, deepen further and give the suggestion again. Now, my having learned this, uh, and, I, and I initially I learned hypnosis in a therapy context, and then I went to, on to explore in other contexts. For example, street hypnosis was a place where I did a lot of exploration. And... Um, and what became very rapidly apparent was that reality just didn't match this model. Because what would often happen is I would put somebody into, or I would assist somebody, I would invite somebody, as the way I would put it now, into uh, a deep state of trance. I'm putting air quotes around that. You can't see it. Um, and all the trance analogs I've been taught to look for would be there. The changes in muscle tone, breathing, the eye flicker. And yet suggestions for even the sort of shallowest level deep trance phenomena were not manifesting. I'd go for, uh, you know, an arm lock or a stick and it, it wouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. And then other times I would um, be out doing street hypnosis or, or, or even sat with a client and I'd just go straight for the phenomenon, just go straight there and get it instantly and and the person be looking up in wonder laughing surprised by their own experience no trance analogs no uh no induction no certainly no induction and deepening phase in a, in a structured sense some would argue that there is still an induction i can understand that argument um but it, there didn't, didn't seem to be it just didn't hang together with this uh this state-based idea uh, and one of the influences on me actually going for the stuff directly was because I came into hypnosis via seeing Darren Brown, as I've mentioned before, and a lot of the stuff that he does in his shows, um, if we look past the fakery, I mean, even if we look at what he was, if we take what he's faking to be absolutely true, um, it's still a lot of direct elicitation of experience rather than going via this big trans induction route. So that always appealed to me a lot more and having an early influence. I, I was doing conversational hypnosis way before I was doing formal hypnosis anyway. So it all made more sense to me. And a big influence as well that really kind of you had an impact on me is a guy called the amazing Kreskin, K-R-E-S-K, 
K-I-N, who's an American mentalist, uh, big in the 60s and early 70s. I think he's alive today, about probably in his 90s. Um, and he used to say there was no such thing as hypnosis, only suggestion. And he would do all of his quote-unquote hypnosis stuff would just be direct. He'd just go straight into it, very, very directly, very, um, you know, no trance rituals or anything like that. So that was that was great. And, and I was going out doing this direct elicitation of hypnotic phenomena stuff. A lot of the street hypnosis people I was hanging around with at the time were going, wow, how are you doing that? How is that possible without a trance induction? And I was just kind of shrugging, going, well, it is. You don't need the induction. It's it's easy. And somebody persuaded me and said, you want to start teaching this? And I said, really? Is that interesting to people? And they, they said, yeah, you know, you want to teach this. So I did. I started blogging on Hypnosis Without Trance. And and it kind of took off. And, and that was cool. Now, these days, I often end up talking about trances. Um, and the difference is, is I'll talk about trances now. Uh, plural, not mm -hmm. I'm not talking about a special state called trance, but I do think I do use the term trance poetically these days. And really, I use the trance poetically to describe any state that a person might be in from which automatic behaviors emerge. And for me, that is as good a definition of trance as any. I mean, that's the point of trance. It seems to me is that the, the conscious, the, the faculty of conscious choice is somehow offline and uh, a spontaneous emergence of experience and behavior is occurring. Now, the more you look at this, the more it starts to become apparent that we are always in trance. Now, from a hypnosis and hypnotherapy perspective, this, this is, um, you know, the funny thing is, do you know who got here first with this idea? James bloody Braid. This is the thing. <laughs> Back in the 1840s, or 1850s, um, I only recently read Braid, and I'm glad I never read Braid back, you know, when I started out, because I never would have done the hypnosis without trance thing. I'd have just gone, oh, Braid was already there. Mm -hmm. he'd, already, he'd already said everything, that he'd come to the same conclusions, just that most hypnotists don't read Braid, so they have no idea. Um, but this point about the trance is an everyday thing. We live in our, we live our lives through the experiences we're, of, we're having in any given moment. We do not live in the world as it is, but as it is occurring to us. And the behaviors that emerge from us merge in congruence with that occurrence, you see, um, with incongruence with the trance. So if somebody wants to change something, what they're really looking to change is a problem trance. It's a thing that comes up over and over again. It's not, you know, it's a question Bob Burns asks in his setup for change work. You know, uh, you, you have a, an unconscious problem, right? I mean, you're not consciously choosing to do this, are you? No. So you have an unconscious problem. Uh, and I think that's a very valid point. People have problem trances. So I start to look at a trance using the term poetically. Mm -hmm. It's about helping people shift the habitual trances that are not serving them um, to undo those trances and to create better adapted trances in their place, to participate in the creation of better adapted uh, trances in their place. The other way where um, I've sort of brought trance back into my thinking is in how it relates to the specific concept of therapeutic trance, perhaps as Ericsson used it. Now, in this context, I've taken to thinking rather than about depth of trance, but about breadth of trance, the, the bandwidth, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, now, the reason being is if you look at James Braid's reconceptualization of hypnosis after he, I mean, initially he suggested uh, this neurohypnosis, this kind of special state of nervous sleep, he called it, and quickly discarded this idea. Um, unfortunately, the idea had already caught on by this point and started to talk about mono-ideism, mono-single ideism, idea. It's like the wrapping of the mind around a single idea. And I think this is a good definition for trance, the way I've just been talking about it. Maybe not a single idea, but a narrow set of ideas. So if somebody has um, an anxiety trance in a particular context, 
what's happening is their mind is getting wrapped around a small set of ideas, maybe about how they are not competent to deal with this situation or whatever. And, and they become entranced by those ideas. And it's like a narrowing of bandwidth and everything else about who they are goes away. It disappears. I, I sometimes use trance interchangeably with the expression reality tunnel. They disappear into a reality tunnel and everything else is outside of the tunnel. So you get this narrowing in. And this is a feature of trance, a narrowing in and an excluding. So, you know, what, what often gets excluded is our um, executive functions, our ability to think things through in different ways. And we end up on one track and disappearing into this narrow trance. Now, if you think about trance like this, and you think about trance as being wrapped around a narrow set of ideas and a narrowing of, of bandwidth well actually we can just have trances of sort of broader or more narrow bandwidth we can expand these trances out and i think the generative trance as stephen gilligan calls it or therapeutic trance as perhaps erickson would have called it that kind of state is actually quite a broad bandwidth state mm -hmm. it is a state that includes more of who the person is more of their uh, processing faculty, uh, more of their ability to think afresh and create anew rather than just be caught in that groove of an old narrow trance. So, so for me, a therapeutic trance is a broad bandwidth state and, uh, and it's somewhat akin to what uh, Dr. Les Femi, that's F-E-H-M-I, who is or at least was the head of biofeedback and neurofeedback at Princeton University, what he calls an open focus state. Uh, and in his book, The Open Focus Brain, which is superficially nothing, nothing to do with hypnosis, but is actually everything to do with hypnosis, particularly if you're doing um, therapeutic hypnosis. Uh, he talks about this open focus state, which is a powerful state in which people drop out of narrow objective focus Think about that in terms of monoideism and narrow bandwidth trance and into an open focus state, their brain tends to drop into a state of what's called synchronous alpha. Mm -hmm. um, the parasympathetic nervous system comes into ascendancy, which is uh, necessary for us not only to do cellular repair, digesting food, all the maintenance stuff our body requires from a health perspective, but it's also necessary when it comes to consolidation of learning. So a parasympathetic state um, is necessary. Uh, the opposite of that is the sympathetic arousal, which is about fight, flight, all of this kind of thing, which is the narrow objective focus state is, the co is correlated with. Interestingly, Les Femi, I'll say this quickly at the last, uh, as a last piece on this, mm -hmm. believes that human beings evolved to spend about 90, 95% of their time in open focus um, and about 10 to 5% of their time in narrow objective focus. But our modern society has skewed that round the other way. So we have huge cultural biases in Western culture towards narrow objective focus and, um, and a bias against open focus. And this ends up creating a lot of problems of uh, modern civilization, modern Western civilization, uh, including chronic stress and a lot of... Um, uh, illnesses, a lot of uh, psychological problems that our, perhaps our ancestors wouldn't have. Mm. That's un you, you can't. There's no way you could actually corroborate that in terms of evidence because you can't go back to old olden times and check out what people were doing. But that's Les Femi's speculation. And to me, it seems a reasonable enough case. So I think about that in terms of, of breadth of trance when I'm doing change work with people. So, and in terms of, of, of change work, I believe that there are a lot of people out there who, say the average person on the street, who believes that perhaps personal change or therapeutic results need to take a long time, or that change needs to be about deep analysis, self-reflection, reliving past trauma somehow, or even that notion that understanding why you have a problem will somehow make it go away. Is mm. Are they beliefs ideas that you've come across the general public general population having and are there any other things that you know i would argue are misnomers about the therapeutic process um i think i've seen all of those things uh come up regularly um 
and, and I've probably got a different view on this because I, I, you know, I've got this whole influence. You mentioned the influence from martial arts and mm. philosophy. Aside from Western philosophy, a big early influence on me is is Taoism and Yin Yang theory. I mean, Yin Yang theory is a huge thing. Uh, I had a client a while ago who, who's had a number of coaches and has been involved in the coaching world for a while. He said, "You're the only person." The only coach I've ever had that really you know, makes use of yin-yang theory and, and brings it to life. So, so it's a huge thing for me. Erickson did as well, by the way, even though he probably had no exposure to that and found his own route um, to looking at both and logic. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think, you know, if you look at the some of the, you know, you, you go back to the depth psychologists, and, and I think particularly Freud. I, I rather suspect that Jung, later in his career, was was somewhat better at doing what he he did than Freud ever was. I can't validate that, but but classic Freudian psychoanalysis, and I've been in it for a bit myself back in the day. It was uh, I ended up in it by accident um, as a client, by the way, and it was tosh. It was useless. Uh, but this idea, you know, people could spend literally 20 years in, you know, in, in Freudian psychoanalysis and, and, and nothing really would change. And I think if you look, you know, there's a huge reaction to this, uh, not just from Ericsson. I mean, Ericsson has called this out himself, but people like uh, Andrew Salter. I don't know if you know Andrew Salter's work. Nope. He's uh, he was uh, a therapist of sorts and a hypnotist back in the 30s and 40s, and he was one of the first people to really start calling out psycho uh, psychoanalysis. Um, and he had a system called uh, conditioned reflex therapy, which was basically is based on Pavlovian ideas. Um, but he was there; he was a real crusader against the slow, ineffective processes of the uh, of the psychoanalysts. So, you know, I, I think this is, and and if you look at what the brief therapy movement was doing in the 60s and 70s, you know, the Paolo Alto people, uh, Don Jackson and uh, John Weakland and Richard Fish and Paul Vaclavic and Bateson was involved, you know, they were looking at moving beyond this into rapid change. Um, and... And, and this was really needed in that context. I mean, it was really needed. They needed to, people started focusing, get a bit more laser-like. What is it that we want to get happening here? You know, making things actually happen. And it was really, really needed and an important thing. And in some ways, I think it's gone the other way now. It's flipped the other way to the point where there are people out there going, yeah, I can change anybody, any problem that anybody's got, I can change it in 12 minutes. Oh, right, you need you need 15 minutes, what's wrong with you? Um, you know, and, and you can, you can get instant change, of course you can get instant change. But not all issues that people have are the same in terms of their complexity, their, their intricacy. One of the things that people say, oh, yeah, you know, I do this 12-minute process, so I change anyone. I say, could you take a boy of five and turn him into the man he'll be at 35 with your 12-minute process? And the answer clearly is no. So there is a process of change between five years old and 35 that you can optimize, but you cannot magically bypass. So, you know, depending on the nature of things, um, it's going to depend on on what occurs. So I think what can kind of happen is some people can come out of NLP training, and I've mentored a lot of NLP people, and they've got some kind of neurosis because they can't fix everyone in 12 minutes, and they think there must be something horrendously wrong with them uh, because they've been taught by their trainers that they should be able to do that. Mm. I've also found that there's a certain paradox as well. I mean, I always laugh about this. I mean, I, I've always worked in three-session blocks for issue-specific change work. Um, and I recently found myself on a, uh, on, on a course run by Wendy Dryden, who is a famous REBT practitioner and author. And I've read some of his books and I really like them. So I had the chance to do this one day workshop with him. And it was called um, Rapid Change in One to Three Sessions. And I thought, well, that's interesting because I've always worked across a three session block. Yeah. Uh, now, I went on this thing and, and it, there were a number of 
people who were doing PhDs in counseling psychology on there who would come along and they're going, well, we just came along to see what, you, what you've what you got to say. I mean, you know, one to three sessions. Are you joking? Is that really possible? And, and I was laughing because the reason I always gave myself three sessions is because I didn't want the pressure. I wanted to have the luxury of all this time, three <laughs> sessions, to not pressure myself. Um, you know, when it comes to issue specific stuff, I will say this because I'm, I'm a great believer in paradox. I talked about yin and yang. I think the more you slow down with a client, I don't mean get flaccid and ineffective. I just mean slow down as in become really present with the details that count. You're not in a hurry to get through the processes. You're not in a hurry to force the change through. I'm talking about still being precise here. I'm talking about, I'm not talking about meandering around or stopping. I'm talking about slowing down. I think the more you slow down and get into the bits that really count rather than trying to get through the bits that count, um, the quicker the change happens. This is, this is my experience. So I give myself one to three sessions. Uh, what often happens for issue-specific change work is I tell this to clients, by the way, because when they say how many sessions will it take, I'm mm -hmm. not missing egg. I don't know. I cannot predict the future. So I, I give them facts about what is the general pattern for clients, you know, the, the overall pattern. So I'll say, you know, I, I, I work across three session blocks with people. Um, for a large number of people, they get the shift they need in the first session. The second session is just about maturing that a little bit, bedding it in, debriefing it. And the third session goes in the bank for them to use at any point. And the reason I tell my clients this is because this is generally true. Mm -hmm. And then I will say, and some people, they will use, um, you know, it, they will use the two sessions and the third one will be about the debrief. Some people will use all three to get what they need to get. And some people, some people very occasionally will book a second block of sessions. You know, so I'll end up working across four or five or oh, occasionally six, you know, and, and sometimes that's not like a bad thing because people, um, they often find there's other things that they want to make adjustments around. And sometimes that will turn into a process of ongoing coaching, mm -hmm. which is about starting to look at all sorts of areas of life, all kinds of areas where, where trances are perhaps not serving. They're not so urgent as the initial issue, but it, you know, it can, it can come out. So, but that's a different thing. It goes into a different area of work. So I think that rapid change is, doable um, and there's a lot you can do to optimize that but one of the things i think is important is you get to utilize human learning changing and growing processes you do not get to bypass them you get to optimally utilize them um, and and some people go too far and they start trying to claim magic you know they they and they, one of the things that often comes about and this comes about from the world of nlp a lot of people in the world of NLP think I bash NLP. People outside of the world of NLP think I'm an NLP cult, true believer, and don't question it. So I'm in this kind of <laughs> awkward place. But I think it's no coincidence that NLP as, as a technology um, is often shown off in a flashy way using phobias, as an example. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, because phobias have, have usually got, often got, not always, but have often got a very simple structure very simple structure to them and they are actually technically quite easy to change but what happens is to go look this person couldn't handle this spider before and now they can handle it see change can happen in an instant therefore everything is the same everything is the same as a fast phobia cure obsessive compulsive disorder same as a fast phobia cure i know there'll be some nlps listening to this going oh he used a label okay i get it there's people and there's labels and we're not working with the labels we're working with the people but the point of the matter is is experience and the trances that people do are not all of equal structures in terms of complexity and what else is going on and if you look at the trance ecologies that people have you see because people are a web of trances those trances sit within an ecological system, within a broader ecosystem. Some trances are easier to pull out. You know, you can literally extract them like an old tooth and, it, and it's not too much of a problem. But others are held tightly in place. We don't get to know ahead of time. So all we can do is go in there, be flexible, be skilled, be aware, work optimally. Um, and you can usually get 
pretty good shifts with people in pretty short amounts of time. But if people start believing that there's some kind of magic wand that bypasses uh, learning, changing and growing faculties, I think that can be a, a problem as well. So I'm, I'm, I'm sort of almost I'm, I'm cautious of both ends of that. Um, and also, I will say this as well. I do believe that true insight is of immense value. Uh, and this is something that's often bagged out in the world of NLP. It's like, oh, insight doesn't change anything. Yes, it fucking does. It really does. I mean, real, true insight where people say, oh, my God, and they see something in an embodied way. They see it differently from how they saw it before. That is true insight, not Freudian insight, where you get some pseudo explanation based upon the therapist's worldview. Mm -hmm. That is not real insight. And I think probably going back to the sort of NLPs, the Semtis, Bander and Grinder and the other developers who are around, they were bagging out insight, were bagging out false insight. They were bagging out the Freudian use of the term insight, which is not really insight at all. Yeah, yeah. It's outside. It's coming from someone else. Right. It's not even any kind of sight. It's just some kind of, it's a frame. It's framing. Framing and insight are not the same thing. You know, if a Freudian analyst starts talking about your Oedipal complex or whatever, I don't know enough about Freudian analysis mm. to, uh, to, to really talk accurately about this. But they're not facilitating insight. They're just pro providing a frame. A frame, incidentally, which was created to help therapists allegedly rather than clients but but you know it's an attempt to, to reframe and frankly i'm not sure that they're that good a matches for reality so they probably never really get anywhere going back to, and you mentioned you'd obviously been on this course and there are other counselors there and they're uh, and you were amused of course because they're going you know can it really be done in one to three sessions mm. I, I, I i'm curious as to talk to you about what, what you think about the power of expectations a change worker has upon what is achievable in terms of defining what the outcome. Mm. Yeah, they're, they're huge. Expectations uh, make a massive difference. Um, one of the things that we're dealing with as change workers is we're dealing with reality on two levels. Uh, we're dealing with physical reality mm -hmm. because people are, I believe, other others will disagree with this, but we are essentially biological entities. So I, I include biology on the physical level. We're dealing with physical reality, biological reality. Um, and we're also dealing with psychosocial reality as well, which is perceived reality. Now, these two realities interact. In fact, the second psychosocial is infinitely more complex than the first, but to use an old philosophy phrase, kind of supervenes upon the first, is emergent from the first. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what we believe and what we expect has a huge bearing, but it does not override the laws of physical reality. Um, and this is my point about optimizing the learning and changing and growing mechanisms. So I tend to, I mean, I, I tend to, I've come to the conclusion and I often say this to clients, I'll sit down and I'll say, look, I know we've only just met and I can't pretend to know you deeply, but there is one thing that I do know to be absolutely true about you. And it is that this problem, this issue, you can go way beyond it. You can absolutely and completely transform your experience around this. So as it just disappears, it just becomes a thing in your past, maybe something you don't even remember. And uh, the reason I know this to be true is, is, is because you're a human being. And this is a fundamental part of being a human being. There are certain things which are true of all human beings, and this is one of them. Just as there are certain things that are true of all aeroplanes that make them aeroplanes. And if those things aren't there, then they're not aeroplanes. And you are a human being, is that not right? Yes. So I know that you have every capacity to go utterly and completely beyond this. And I'm probably guessing, I often say, that you probably think that you're some kind of special case of fucked up, right? Um, 
which usually gets a laugh uh, and they go, well, yeah, that, that for some reason it's going to be extra hard for you because, oh, you know, it's so entrenched or it's been going. I, believe me, everybody thinks that that is so. And I understand why. That is also a very human thing to think that is so. And, and I'm saying this to them. And on one level, somebody might listen to that and analyze it and go, ah, look, I get what you're doing there. There's a lot of clever suggestions and all of that in there. But that's not really what what I'm saying, I'm not there from a place of clever suggestions. I'm just speaking my truth. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking what is, what, what seems, what feels true to me. Uh, and I've seen that truth from the inside because I know how much I've changed my own self and my own life. And I've worked with enough people to know um, how people can change, to know how they stop themselves from changing when they don't. Uh, and all of these things. And I'm, I'm absolutely, you know, saying to a friend of mine the other day, if somebody isn't changing, there's only one reason why, because they're not really doing the change work. Mm -hmm. you, you cannot do the change work without changing because, because that's its very nature. And I don't mean that in some kind of like casual way. I mean, there are certain processes. There are certain I often talk about undoing and recreating. Mm -hmm. Now, there are, there are processes of undoing trances and patterning that we hold that if you do them, those things undo. It's just the same as if you strike the key on the piano, it makes a note. And if it hasn't made a note, it's because you didn't strike the key, you see. So I know that when people really get in and they really do the work, they change and they cannot not change. Uh, so, yeah, so that for me, you could say that's an expectation. And I'm sure because I speak from that place and I communicate from that place, I'm at the same time inviting the client into that trance of possibility and wonder that I myself exist in when I sit down to work with the client. It's 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 so interesting and it's very reminiscent, James, of a conversation that I think we've had previously when mm. you talked to me about um, your theory as to Ericsson uh, explaining how he was curious to mm. find out uh, and that people would analyze that. Mm. And you could analyze it uh, about the clever language patterns, but actually, uh, in essence, you were explaining to me that it came from just a place you suspect that Ericsson was just genuinely curious. Yeah, I, I think so. I think this is one of the things that really is true. I mean, you know, I love... I love the breakdown of the structure of language and suggestion, and I love to get deep into that. I'm a big geek for that. But on the flip side of that, how you're structuring your own reality is, in a sense, infinitely more important because you will always speak from the reality tunnel that you're in, from the trance that you're in, from the occurrence of things that you are in. You cannot not speak from that place. So somebody might try not to they might be there and this is i'm aware as i'm saying this if anybody is a is listening to this and they're kind of relatively new to doing change work and, and are and have doubts about whether this is really true or that's really true or whether you're doing the right thing or it's very very natural and very very human to when you're starting out to learn something to have doubts to and to have to fake it to a certain degree. Uh, and this is a part of the process, having to fake it. Um, and it is also true, and, and you can still get things happening from a place of faking it, particularly if you're good at faking it. I was always very good at faking it, you see, mm. um, which was an advantage to me. And however good you are at faking it, there will come a point in your development where you become more grounded in certain truths and ways of being in the world and ways of being with your client, whereby you're not faking it anymore. You really are there. And, and when you get to that place, your communication and your efficacy are, they, they're so much more powerful and they go way beyond. It's almost like you cannot not influence effortlessly from that place in, in useful ways because you cannot not communicate from 
the reality tunnel that you are in, the empowered reality. There was a quote about Erickson. I think it was in the book American Healer. Somebody said something like, the thing about Erickson is you could not be exposed to his life-affirming philosophy without it completely changing you. And Erickson would communicate from inside of a reality, an organization of reality that was inherently empowering for people. And, and that's the thing. This is one of the ways, you know, going back to the idea of trance again and using this term poetically, you're going to entrance people. One of the biggest things that will entrance another person is the trance that you are in. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a huge thing for me is, is, you know, being in a particular trance when I engage with a client and also having an awareness if I'm not in that trance. You know, if I'm in another trance because I woke up with a hangover or, you know, or something like that, it's a very rare thing. So I was going to say, I'm sure that's never happened. Well, it really, really does happen, but it did happen recently. And I, um, I, you know, always after I went up to interesting talks in London and uh, Matt Kendall insisted on buying me a drink afterwards. And I'm such a lightweight. I had these drinks and then I couldn't sleep properly. And then I had clients the next day and I was actually hung over and it wasn't ideal initially, but, um, but uh, I soon got into flow and my, my client work trance took me out of my hangover trance. So that was a useful thing. Mm. But yeah, it's, and, and actually all of this, by the way, I'm talking about this, this is there within the NLP system, uh, in the guise of go there first. Mm-hmm. Go there first, you know. If you're going to invite somebody into a particular trance, a particular orientation in the world, be in it first yourself. James, you mentioned um, that there might be people listening to this who, you know, are becoming more familiar with change work and it's okay to have doubts. What advice would you have for people as they're starting out in terms of wanting to get good at change work? Um, The most obvious one is... Practice, 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 practice. Do, 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 do. Keep doing, keep doing, keep doing, keep doing. Um, my second thing is also is is chunk down into things rather than chunking sideways. So what a lot of people do is they will learn some stuff and they will have a sense that they are not good enough yet or they're not where they would like to be in terms of their abilities with clients so the obvious answer is to add something to what you've got to go and learn a new method um a new technique go uh, and i understand that and i've been there myself and i still do it because i love this stuff and you know i'm fascinated but what i would often suggest is, is hang back and start simple and go deep into the simple stuff that you can do mm-hmm. so people uh, one of the things that brought me to this is I would often end up mentoring people who have done uh, longer NLP trainings or long hypnotherapy trainings where they've learned lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of techniques. And they come out sort of staggering with this, this bulging toolkit of, um, of, of often not overly refined tools because do you see what I mean? It's like, right, mm. we're going to do this. Uh, right, we're doing fast phobia cure. Now we're doing visual squash. Now we're doing this is a sort of run through of once of each, and then and then moving on. Uh, and they come out and they have the experience of sitting down with clients and going, "Well, I don't know what I'm going to use. Uh, I'll try this." And but they sort of hesitantly try it, and they're not quite sure if it's the right thing. And of course, you know, as you were saying, where, where you're coming from counts. So what I often advise to people, and I certainly used to say this when people would say, "James." What hypnotherapy training would you recommend? And my usual answer to that is I would recommend that you don't do a hypnotherapy training, that you go and do. I used to always recommend they go and train with Andy Austin in IEMT. Mm-hmm. I don't think Andy teaches IEMT anymore. I think Andy has IEMT trainers, but I don't think he teaches it himself. Uh, I could be wrong. Uh, and I say, you know, pick something like IEMT and, and sit down and start working with clients with IEMT. Or, or tapping, if you like, or uh, or Byron Katie's The Work. Mm-hmm. Pick, pick something. Pick a simple format and go in and just run the format and, and get good at being with clients and taking clients through that format. Get good at the rapport building. Get good at the, uh, at the nuances, the subtleties. Get good at framing what you do in powerful ways. Get really good 
with this technology, this simple technology. And when you're really rocking that, when you're really rocking that simple thing, then add something else. Yep. Then add something else. Um, and I really do think that this is the stronger way to do things and build skills. And I also accept that um, I'm a hypocrite in saying that because that's not what I did. You know, I, I was uh, more, 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 more going out in the world. But, you know, these days I actually slow down more and I constantly revisit things that I'm already, a lot of people would say, James, you're quite skilled in that. Why are you spending more time, you know, upping your game with that particular thing? Uh, because I often find by going in deeper, that's where the good oil is to be found rather than going out and away to something else. See you in the gang again, though. That's, uh, it's very, very, very interesting uh, and a, a really nice, uh, a really nice point. Um, are there any books that you uh, can recommend uh, to listeners out there that have really had an impact on you? Oh, anyway. I'm sure there's a huge amount, but, uh, you know, two or three that come to mind. OK, well, I'm going to skip over Monsters and Magical Sticks because we already covered that one yep. in the uh, in, in the rapid fire round. Although I will just say quickly, um, the first time I read that, and I've read that now three times across the years, but the first time I read it was uh, after uh, I'd done master practitioner training. I'd been seeing clients for a short while I was very, very confused um, in that I didn't really know what I was doing. I just felt like I was chucking techniques of people and with my toes crossed in my shoes, hoping stuff would work. And sometimes it did and sometimes it didn't. And I had no idea why and what. And I felt there was nothing really informing me. There was no there was no real deeper understanding informing me. I had no overall strategy other than randomness. Uh, and. I read Monsters and Magical Sticks, and it really helped me to take what I'd learned from my NLP training, Prac and Master Prac, and, 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 ha and it helped it become something coherent and integrated. So I really value that book from that perspective. Um, and I think there's a lot of richness in there, and it bears a lot of rereading. So that's an absolutely uh, fantastic book. I'm going to forward wind in time to something I've read very, very recently. It was one of the earliest things I read, but something I read very, very recently, which I think is brilliant, is uh, Michael Yatko's book, Suggestions of Abuse, mm -hmm. which I think has the subtitle something like Real and Imagined Memories of Child Sexual Trauma or something like that. Um, now, aside from the content, which sounds like, oh, my God, that sounds a bit like heavy going and stuff like that. Uh, it's not really a book about the content. It's a book about the process of how memories can be accidentally and inadvertently manipulated um, and are accidentally and inadvertently manipulated by people who don't understand what they're doing. And many of those people are well-meaning therapists. Um, now, aside from the point of learning about how well-meaning therapists can utterly screw people up in terms of bending current memories out of shape and into less functional shapes and out and out creating false memories. It's actually a book that's all about hypnosis because the manipulation of people's perceptions and, and memories is what hypnosis is largely about, you know. Um, you know, having people re-experience themselves and their lives in different ways and, and I think it really informs a lot about what we are doing as hypnotists or change workers in terms of inviting people into new realities, into new ways of making sense of themselves. He's warning against hypnotherapists or, or any therapists who inadvertently invite people into less functional organizations and experiences of reality. But on a, on a process level, the same skills are used, but the other way to invite people into more functional and better adapted uh, organizations and experiences of reality. So I, th I think it's a really brilliant book in more than just the obvious way, if you see what I mean. And I, I really did get a lot from that. So 
I, as you know, have a, a real passion for helping people who maybe don't believe that uh, change can happen as quick as many of us have witnessed it happen to mm. begin to shift their thinking, to begin to open up and hear some of the things that are really possible. And with that in mind, I'd love for you to, to share perhaps uh, maybe a case study of someone um, that you or a case where you work with someone. They've come in one way and they've been transformed in some way in a fairly swift amount of time. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, I, I just pick a couple recent clients. Uh, I had uh, a client recently who I did a. This was actually a, I have the recording of this session, um, because it was someone who did the Beyond the Subtle Fears uh, course that I did, which was a live sort of webinar series. Oh. But I invited a person. I said, you know, who would like a, a an actual coaching session. Um, and when I talk about coaching, I, I'm still doing what I would call psychoactive work, coaching hypnosis. Mm. It's just more conversational. Um, and I had somebody who, who will remain anonymous and was kept anonymous in the recording. Uh, her issue was she's from Poland. She's lived in the UK for a long time and, um, and had had a couple of bad experiences at work uh, a while back and, and really taken a knock in terms of her self-image to the point where she kind of spiraled into depression and um, actually lost her ability to, uh, to to read English and, and write English, to be able to communicate in a written form in English, which was a huge hindrance at work and also became withdrawn and stopped engaging in uh, conversations. Uh, and really it had taken a, a big knock, but it, interestingly it came out of this loss of ability to read. So I did a session with her, a single session, and um, by all accounts, by her accounts, it was nothing short of miraculous, and, and she completely changed around, regained her ability to read and communicate in written English at a high level. And she's a very, very, very smart person I'm talking about here, um, who, who can, could, and, and can again now communicate at a very high level, um, you know, doing, doing highly specialized professional work. So that was a huge one. Um, uh, another client I've worked with recently who uh, has been taking a long time um, to come to terms with his sexuality. Mm -hmm. he's, he's gay, has kept that in the closet right into his 50s, uh, and was sort of embracing that and wanting to be able to come out and meet people and, and go on dates, but just had a horrible cringing feeling and, a, and an awful sense of awkwardness with meeting people. Um, and again, going on the feedback from that, uh, that's something that we, we did three sessions on it, but the, the major shift was uh, in one session after the second session, which was the session where we actually did some real psychoactive work rather than just had a conversation about what was what was happening. Yeah. Uh, and the shift there was, for him, going on his feedback, pretty miraculous. His description was, the, the cringing feeling that I've always had has just gone, and I'm going out tonight, and for the first time in my life, I'm really looking forward to it. Amazing. So, so you know, as somebody who understands something about social anxiety the shifting from that cringing, oh, I should go out, but I don't want to, to, to really looking forward to going out and being free. And it was that free from the cringing feeling. And, and I know from working with him face to face, I know what the cringing feeling looked like physiologically as well, because yeah. we'd elicited it in the session, um, you know, and, and then sort of taken that uh, uh, apart, you know, undone that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's a couple of, recent cases but I could list more I will say um, as well I don't have any stories about remission from cancer or or, or any of these things because uh, the area that I specifically work in I don't work around health issues or anything like that yeah um, my particular area of interest is in our uh, patterns of engagement with life our patterns of being and our patterns of engaging um, so I don't work with people for health stuff like migraines or irritable bowel or anything, anything like that. I, I just work uh, with people in, you know, in their everyday 
trances, ones that are problems that they wish to transform to different ways of engaging with situations. So that's my kind of area of specialism and expertise. James, um, in a moment, I'm going to ask you if people are listening and want to get hold of you, get in touch. Where can they go? How can they do that? Um, but when we talked about you doing the podcast and, you know, obviously the theme is rapid change. Is there anything that you thought um, could come up or your thoughts around rapid change that you be useful for you to, to share with people? Uh, I don't think there was. And there's a reason for that um, in that I... I'm not one to ever really think ahead. Uh, I don't plan ahead whenever I do any <laughs> interviews, talks or anything like that, because if I do, I don't know, it, it kind of like, um, yeah, it just kind of scuppers me. So yep. I, it, it, and I do the same with, with change work as well. I prefer to show up and be present in the moment and um, to use a phrase from, from the physicist David Bomb, which is a, huge influence on me is to participate in the unfolding yeah that's a real-time engagement and and i think a lot of the time people will spend their time trying to make decisions about a future that hasn't happened yet based on information that they don't have so you know and i used to do this a lot and it was a great way of sticking myself in life of getting stuck because if i play a game in my head which says well i need to know what i'm going to do ahead of time well, in order to have that be a good fit with what's going to happen, I need to know what's going to happen. And I don't know that. And I can't know that because I'm not, you know, Mystic Meg. So across time, I've, I've learned to just let go. And my YouTube channel is called Chaos Wave. Mm -hmm. And there is a reason it's called Chaos Wave, because I'm a big advocate. And this is how I, I choose to engage with life in recognizing that life is infinitely complex um, and it cannot be micromanaged successfully. And I think micromanaging usually leads to stress, struggle and disappointment rather than real creative flow. So I, I love this this idea, this metaphor of the chaos wave. A surfer, when a surfer surfs a wave, cannot control the wave, cannot make the wave be any particular way. Where they have power is how they meet the wave, how they engage with the wave. And they create with the wave in the moment the, you know, the surf, the ride that they're going to do. If they're in a surf competition, what gets created in the moment is a co-creation between the wave and, and the surfer. So I know I'm getting kind of philosophical. That's but great. For that reason, I don't ever think ahead. And I will tie this in with change work, by the way, because I think... Uh, Ericsson wouldn't have used these metaphors, but I think this is what he was all about. I think he was all about learning to meet the world mm -hmm. in creative um, and interesting ways uh, rather than trying to struggle and, and, and control it. And you, you can see this in his distinction with, you know, trust the unconscious mind, let go of that conscious need to control, and then interesting things emerge. It's been so great chatting to you, and I think there's so many valuable uh, things to take away uh, for everyone, uh, regardless of uh, where they're at on their own personal therapeutic journey. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, how should they do that? Well, um, they can go to jamestrip.co.uk, uh, which is a shit website, frankly. I'm, I really, really do need to uh, rewrite it to be more reflective of what I actually do these days. Um, but nonetheless, you can go there and uh, the attached email address is trip at jamestrip.co.uk if people want to message me privately. And that's my uh, kind of hypnosis for change work and my personal psychology coaching website. Um, if you want to learn about my approach to hypnosis, the destination is www.hypnosiswithouttrance.com. Um, and that's all one word. Uh, and the last place, or it's not last in, in, a, in a literal sense, but the last place I'll mention is on YouTube. Um, I have a web uh, a channel on YouTube called Chaos Wave where I post videos regularly about hypnosis and about life and engagement with life, personal transformation, personal efficacy, uh, these kinds of things. And that's called Chaos Wave, which you can find somewhere on youtube fantastic well we will post uh, on your rapid change works page 
the uh, all of the links so that people can find them easily and they'll also be as always on the itunes episode guide information too james thank you so much for chatting and thank for you. joining us today uh, thank you for having me, Howard. It's been, uh, been a fascinating conversation. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, why not share it with anyone you think might be interested and even head over to iTunes to give us a glowing review. You'll find more about what's coming up on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash rapid change works. And of course, you'll find all the links related to this episode, plus those free five steps to getting your suggestions to sizzle over at rapidchange.works. 